Hello and welcome to Found. This is the podcast from TechCrunch where we bring you the stories behind the startups and we speak to the entrepreneurs who build them to get those stories. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Becca Skutak. Hey Becca, how's it going? It's good. It's good. Finally feels like spring. It does. So that definitely boosts my mood. How are you? Same here. There's sun, which I remember uh, vaguely. And, you know, there are little flowers peeking their heads out of the ground. It's beautiful. So I'm excited as well. Yeah. Only a matter of time before we get to that period of each year where my dog gets reinterested in the fact that things grow from the ground and Mm. wants to take just a little little taste of everything. Well, everyone should. Everyone should take a little taste of everything. That's our lesson from found to you, our listeners. Our entrepreneurs certainly do that. They are adventurous people for the most part, risk takers, unlike me. (laughs) But today we're talking to Lauren Mackler from CoFertility, which is making egg donation and third-party reproduction more accessible and less transactional. I didn't know much about this industry going into this, but Lauren really opened my eyes to how much this business is in need of innovation and change. Hi, Lauren. How's it going? Good. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. I don't know when this will air, so this might be out of time for our listeners, but it's just the start of spring, and I'm in Toronto, Mm -hmm. and it's actually beginning to be warm and it's very nice. So put me in a good mood, I would say. Normally I'm in a bad mood when I'm on these Mm. podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) It's raining in LA right now. So I I feel the opposite, (laughs) but maybe it's a a promise of spring. Yeah, it'll get your way eventually. Mm -hmm. I think it's moving in that direction, let's say. But uh, (laughs) LA needs a little more green space. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's true. It's true. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us. To start this off, do you want to give our listeners just a general overview of what it is that your company CoFertility does? Yeah, absolutely. So CoFertility is a new fertility ecosystem that at our core gives women the opportunity to freeze their eggs for free when they donate half of the eggs retrieved to intended parents who can't otherwise conceive. Mm. So that could be someone who struggles with fertility, hopeful gay dads, cancer survivors, and more. And for those who might not be interested in egg donation or who might not qualify for egg donation, we have another program for them called Keep, where they have the opportunity to freeze their eggs and keep 100% of those eggs for themselves, where we've been able to help lighten the financial load through different partnerships that we have throughout the ecosystem. Great. Awesome. So uh, another, you know, kind of general question for listeners who may not be that familiar with the industry. Yeah. How does this kind of differ from what has been available before? Like what were kind of the options that were out there? And then what did you want to change about that? Yeah, I think it's a twofold answer to your question. One is that egg freezing is this, you know, I think an incredible advancement in science, right? That enables someone to essentially freeze their eggs in time, right? Like we know that the best time to freeze your eggs, we always say is when you can least afford it. Mm. The younger you are, the higher the quantity of your eggs and the better the quality. And so being able to retrieve those eggs and put them on ice gives women more options later in life should they experience infertility. It's something that like the experimental label was lifted off egg freezing in 2012. And Mm. it's something that more and more people are doing. However, it's super, super cost prohibitive. Can be anywhere from, you know, 12 to $20,000 in the US to freeze your eggs. And 
when you're someone in your 20s or early 30s, that can be really, really cost prohibitive. It's something that you know some large employers are giving some access to, but really it's something that not enough people have mm -hmm. the ability to do at an age where it really would be most beneficial. On the other side, egg donation in the US is something that feels really transactional. And I'm happy to share more about my personal story and, and that of our co-founders. But it's something where cash compensation is a very big piece of the equation, mm -hmm. meaning that Intended parents typically pay a donor cash compensation for her experience involved in the egg donation process. And that can be anywhere, I think, from you know $8,000 of cash compensation as high as over $100,000, wow. depending on her heritage, depending on her education. The cost essentially goes up and up, which is something that we felt was kind of unethical mm. and really feels pretty icky for lack of a yeah. better word and really you know creates a stigma i think a lot of women are off put by this idea that it kind of feels like they're selling their eggs and it's something where i think it prevents a lot of women who otherwise might want to help grow another family from doing it because it feels kind of wrong to them. Mm -hmm. And it actually leaves intended parents without adequate options. We hear from so many intended parents that they've been looking for a donor for years and they haven't felt that they found someone they aligned with or that they don't feel their own background is reflected in the donors that they're seeing put forth by other options. So our feeling was, hey, if we can bring a different model to the table that sort of removes cash compensation and brings women in with this idea that they will both help grow another family and think about their own future at the same time. Can we open up the pie of egg donors who are interested in participating in this? Right. And so that's really where it came from. Mm -hmm. Cool. And it sounds like from what you've mentioned so far that you and the other two co-founders all came to this from very personal experiences. So maybe if you want to talk about that and what did lead you yeah. on this journey to found the company? Yeah, happy to. So I should I should mention part of my story. I was um, I had been at Uber for eight years right? and I helped launch Uber across the East Coast in the early days and then went on to start a new business line there called Uber Health, which does patient transportation. And I think I've covered that before. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. So I, I yeah. pitched that business line to our executive leadership team in early 2017. And within a few weeks of pitching it, I woke up one morning and had a pain in my side and thought, oh gosh, what's going on? Push for some diagnostic testing and turned out I had a very, very rare abdominal disease. It was like one of 150 people on the planet to ever get this disease. Oh. And it meant I had like these, you know, benign, but still problematic masses growing throughout my abdomen that meant I would need to have a number of surgeries to remove the disease. And so you can imagine, I thought, oh my gosh, how am I going to deal with this disease? But also, will I ever be able to have children? Mm -hmm. So it set off this like path for me to like uncover what would my options be in life? And my doctor said, I asked like, should I freeze my eggs before these surgeries? Like, what should I consider? And given how rare my disease was, they decided that I shouldn't do that, but that someday, if it came down to it, I might need to explore egg donation. So that's when I started to like look at the space and just couldn't believe what I saw. I was surprised, you know, as someone who's Jewish, if I wanted to have a Jewish donor, it would cost way more money for a Jewish donor than not, right? Mm. Or, wow. you know, I could see that people who had different backgrounds, right? If you're looking for an Asian donor, it's way more expensive from a cash compensation piece, right? It just left me feeling pretty, ugh, 
right? Like this idea, some of the companies were very focused on the physical appearance of donors, whereas other ones, it was just like, these are their characteristics and that's it. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, actually, my sister decided incredibly to freeze her eggs and donate them to me ahead of my surgeries so that I could go into them knowing I had eggs on ice waiting Mm -hmm. for me should I need them someday. And that was like incredible peace of mind, right? Just like knowing that I could go about my life and make decisions without the pressure of having a baby. Long story short, after I had three surgeries, I ended up ultimately conceiving my now daughter unassisted without using my sister's eggs, but I never stopped thinking about egg donation and egg freezing. And one of my two co-founders, Hallie Teco, who she actually founded Rock Health and then went on to start Natalist and sold Natalist to Everly Well. She is someone who had been through her own journey as well, where just very much through the, the IVF ringer and kind of looking at this space through a similar lens that I did and felt like her biggest regret in life was that she didn't freeze her eggs at 25, right? And so we came together with this feeling of like, how do we educate more women? And and Hallie is someone who I think she didn't know at 25 that she should freeze her eggs, right? Nor could she have afforded it at that time. So it really came forth as this way to make egg freezing something more women know that they could have access to and then doing it in a more affordable way. While on this flip side, bringing really incredible women to the table as it relates to egg donation at the same time. So it felt like we could solve two problems with with one solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think on that subject, like it seems like there's a lot of different things to untangle there. And like, how did yeah, you know totally. that it was going to work, I guess? Because it sounds like an existing market. It's such an interesting, like it's a two-sided marketplace, yeah. right? Just like Uber, right? But the Exactly. <laughs> Like, it seems like the incentive structure was sort of established and like, there's a reason why, I guess it's owing to scarcity or like maybe cultural like reluctance in some cases for certain populations. But, you know, those dynamics were all there because they had economic power behind them. So how did you look at that and go like, we can dismantle that and we can offer an alternative and make it viable? Yeah, we realize this is going to be a big marketing challenge, right? Like, Mm -hmm. how do we reframe and sort of rebrand egg donation so that more people are open to it and interested. We brought on a third co-founder, Ariel Spiegel, who has that marketing background, both in the infertility space, as well as marketing to a younger audience. She used to lead digital marketing for Victoria's Secret Pink. So she like understood that younger female audience. But it really came down to this idea that like, there are so many intended parents, and I see it all, all the time. I meet with intended parents every single day who tell me, I have been looking for years. There's nobody that I want to match with Mm -hmm. in this ecosystem. I think it's because, you know, you could look at ads for egg donors, right? Like if you look at TikTok and you look at donor talk or whatever you want to call (laughs) it, right? You'll see an ad where it's like, want to go to Paris this summer? Donate your eggs every three months. Mm. Or, you know, want to go to lunch without looking at the bill? Donate your eggs, right? That messaging is not going to speak to the women that a lot of these intended parents are excited to match with, right? Mm. And so I think what we've been able to do is the women that are excited about co-fertility and want to participate in our split program are quite often people who are incredibly ambitious and who are very much prioritizing their career or are planning for their future, right? And so they're highly matchable in that way. So a lot of this truly was like based on 
hunches, right? That mm-hmm. like we'd be able to attract this type of donor, but also very much like, you know, I think we put ourselves in the position of intended parents of like, what kind of egg donor would I want? So it's, it's a little bit of both. That makes a lot of sense because those ads sound appealing to me and nobody would want it <laughs> if I was able to donate eggs. You don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like the bad tech yeah. ones, I mean. I want to go to Paris, I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I'd like to go to Paris too. <laughs> I'm curious too with the thought process behind building the company business model. Because I know we've seen a lot of innovation in the fertility space over the last few years out of the startup ecosystem. And so many companies, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but so many companies focus on the B2B2C angle. Mm -hmm. Oh, we sell this as a service that employers can offer as a benefit and sort of take that's been the most popular route, it seems like so far. So I'm curious why you guys decided to do more of this, like, I don't want to say direct to consumer because that's a category and this is not direct (laughs) to consumer, but you wanted to go kind of straight to the source and why you thought this would be sort of a better approach than what we've seen so far. Yeah. I certainly think for a lot of companies that B2B2C approach makes a lot of sense. And I do think there's potential appetite for us in different ways to tap into that as well. But I think that here, there are existing options that are essentially direct to consumer for egg donation, right? Where, you know, intended parents come to these different companies, maybe they get like a one-to-one sort of, let us give you some options of egg donors or like, here, shop all these egg donors, right? Like there is a market for this. It's just not adequately serving, right? Right, Like there's still like an appetite for something different. There's an appetite for something else, right? So like, it's funny you mentioned like there are similarities to Uber and that's so much of what resonates with me. But like at Uber, you're matching a rider and a driver. So like we cared very much about the number of rides completed. Mm -hmm. But the other metric that we cared a ton about was ETAs. Like how quickly are you matching a rider and a driver? Here, we're looking at matching, you know, split member or donor with intended parents. And we talk all the time about days to match. How quickly can we match these two parties, right? Like yesterday, we had two intended parents that literally like the second a donor came, we made her active matched within 30 minutes, Mm. both cases. Really, really incredible from like a days to match experience. Like, And I think the intended parents had been on the platform for maybe less than a week in both cases. So our ability to match them really quickly, I think one of them had access to donors for maybe five hours, right? So, you know, sometimes we see them deliberating for a long time. Sometimes they match really quickly. But my point being that like, we are able to reach intended parents without there being this like business in the middle. Yeah, I do think for companies that are looking to engage their LGBTQ community and to really support family building on that front, we would love to see egg donation and surrogacy be something that they are more plugged into offering. Mm -hmm. There are some that are doing it, which is great. Please keep doing it if you're listening. But like, (laughs) I think there needs to be even more in this space. And so we're looking actively for ways to get more companies on board with that. Because if two gay men want to have a baby, like they need an egg donor Mm -hmm. to be able to do that. On this flip side, I think if your company is like smaller than, I don't know, 400 people, it's really hard to find fertility benefit options for them for egg freezing, right? So having a way for women who don't have that coverage to have access to egg freezing without necessarily their employer being able to do it is something that we see a huge gap in the market on. 
Mm-hmm. I think the other thing about your platform that I've noticed, like you mentioned it, like the matching experience and all of the marketing experience feels very like family centric and obviously like it eschews that transactional approach. Like it doesn't feel cold and it doesn't feel catalogy in the way that mm-hmm. I guess some of these things can. So yeah. can you take us through a bit of that and like how you went through this design process and did you do a lot of like customer surveying and how did you come up with your sort of your ability to find matches and things like that? Yeah. Well, actually, we always laugh about this. Like Hallie was, she just like knew, like she, we had that one conversation. When when we first got connected, she didn't even know my experience with egg freezing and egg donation. Mm. And so it felt really fortuitous that she was like, I have this idea. I want to do it. Let's run with this. And I was like, Hallie, you have no idea like <laughs> how right this is, right? Talk about like founder product fit, right? Like really aligning is so important. And she, I was very bullish on what she had suggested. And this was an idea. Egg sharing is like not a new concept. It's something that's done in pockets all over the world. But she and I felt strongly about building it in this larger, more networked approach. And I needed to see data before I would go all in. Hmm. Because she she was like, let's go, let's go. I was like, hold on. Like, I got it. Let's do a survey. So we created a type form and I asked a, like a handful of Instagram influencers to like post it in their stories to just see like, because it doesn't matter if like as a 35 year old woman, like, is this something that I would do? Like split my right. eggs with someone else? Right. It doesn't matter. I'm too old. But would women between the ages of 21 and 33 do it? Right. That's the question. And so we got this survey out there and we had like within 24 hours, like close to a thousand women had responded to this survey And 66% of them were like, yes. (laughs) So to me, that was very compelling that this was something we needed to do. And we used a lot of that data to help support the way that we approached going to market, at least on the egg freezing side of our business. And then on the intended parent side, we had a lot of user conversations, right? Anyone and everyone that we could talk to who had either used donor eggs or who was looking for donor eggs became like, the biggest resource to us. Mm. We were total sponges and understanding like what went well about the journey that you had? What didn't? How did this whole thing make you feel? I think something we learned from a lot of intended parents is that they have regret about not educating themselves on what is best for the donor conceived person on the Mm. other end of this. And so we believe that it's very much our role and responsibility to think more than just about this transaction of getting eggs. But what happens once you have them. You're raising a donor-conceived person who ultimately might want to know about their genetics or might want to better understand their story. There was a study that came out from Harvard in 2021 that said, I think it was over 60% of donor-conceived people really struggled with this idea that their parents paid cash compensation for their donation. Mm. And that you know involves both sperm donation and egg donation. But to me, it's like, okay, now that we know that, what can we do about it, right? How do we educate intended parents and donors upfront about the benefits of a disclosed donation and, you know, sharing their contact information, right? So the vast majority of the matches we've made have been disclosed or known donations. And what that means is this like fear that I think came along with anonymous donation of like, oh, you won't know if like your offspring is walking down the street next to you, Mm. right? Like that's totally gone when the situation is a disclosed match. Yeah. So we thought about all of these things as we designed our offering. We have like, you know, our stamps and how we feel about different areas. Like we believe the match should be mutual. We believe that we should be human-centered, right? We're always thinking about 
everyone involved in this process, obviously the intended parents, the donor, but really that donor conceived person is someone who's always top of mind for us. And I think that comes through to everyone that we work with. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not something that I would even immediately have thought of. Like I was like, oh yeah, there's the different parties involved, like the donor and then the recipient and whatever. But then I didn't even think of the donor state person, which is a huge blind spot that I'm sure a lot of the other platforms also seem to have. Mm -hmm. But then it's natural when you're thinking like, if I was the kid and then I was like, oh, am I, in, I was a hundred thousand dollar. Like I was at the top end. Like, I don't think they got their well, people ROI wonder, on that, but People <laughs> wonder, seriously, right, like, yeah. we laugh about it. Right. But it's like, do I measure up to what my parents pay? Yeah. Yeah. No, a hundred percent. I would think that. Like, And yes. so there just has to be a better way. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what we're excited to do. Mm-hmm. And I was curious too about the process here for say someone who is interested in using this to freeze their eggs or someone who is looking to get it on the other hand. Yeah. How does that look like if someone yeah. is interested, comes across you guys and like does actually want to go through with it? What does that look like? Yeah. So they would first go to cofertility.com slash freeze, or they could find it on cofertility.com. But We have essentially like a quiz, like understand what your options are and also like what your goals are, right? Like, are you someone who wants to have three children? And at what point do you want to start having those children? Like those factors play a role in whether or not egg freezing is something that you might want to consider. I mean, we also have women who come to us who are like, I have no idea if I want to have kids, but I want to leave all my options open. So for Mm. whatever brings you to that conversation. Like on our end, there's no judgment. We will help you work through it, whatever that may be. But we ask that you fill out that initial questionnaire in the sense that like at least know what's possible, right? So we have two programs, like I mentioned, our keep and our split program. The split program does involve all of the same criteria or clinical criteria that ASRM or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine sets forth as it relates to egg donation. So we're not skimping on any of those clinical requirements. So if you're somebody who you know is 34 or older, like you're not going to qualify for the split program or If you only have one ovary, you wouldn't qualify for the split program. So there's like some base level questions that we can kind of determine whether or not you qualify for both programs or only for one. And then from there, if say you qualify for the split program, Mm -hmm. you'd be then invited to fill out a longer questionnaire that involves your medical history, your biological family's medical history. So grandparents, parents, siblings, half siblings, and any potential offspring, as well as things about like your lifestyle and personality, right? So like, do you smoke cigarettes? How much alcohol do you drink? Like different things like that, that help us to determine whether or not you're clinically qualified. If you pass that screen, we then have you do a one-on-one call with our team. So we get on a Zoom with everybody who gets to that stage and we talk through what the split program entails. It's a combination, I would say. It's like part interview, part informed consent, like fully understanding the process And also just an opportunity for you to ask any and all questions, right? This is not something that has to be for everybody. And so making sure you feel like you're totally asking all of your questions is something Mm -hmm. that's really important to us. At that point, the questionnaire that you filled out becomes essentially a profile. And with your permission, of course, that profile is something that intended parents have access to once they've created an account on our platform to determine whether or not you're a good fit for them to be a match. And at that point, It could be you're on the platform for 30 minutes before you match, or it could be, you know, a couple of weeks or a couple of months. 
And when there is a match, our member advocate team will reach out to the donor with more information about the intended parents. Sometimes the intended parents write a letter. Sometimes we share just so it's like, is this a match you want to move forward with? And then at that point, some of our matches have what we call a match meeting Mm -hmm. um, where they get on a Zoom and can meet each other or they can meet in person. We've had like a full gamut of of what that looks like. But from there, that's when you go for in-person clinical screening at partner clinic. So that could be either local to the donor or in some cases the donor might travel, just depends. And then you schedule for your retrieval once you're approved and clinically like cleared. So there's a number of tests that have to be run from like blood work, hormone testing, a genetic screen, bunch of different things. But all of that is like very much in line with the way that traditional egg donation works. But at that point, once the retrieval happens, the eggs are split in half. Mm -hmm. The donor's half gets sent to be stored for up to 10 years at a state-of-the-art storage facility at no cost to the donor. So this is something you don't have to think about for up to 10 years. And the Mm -hmm. intended parents' eggs go and they get fertilized right away to create embryos for them. Mm -hmm. Just a couple like additional questions about that. Are there any reasons for rejection that would be beyond clinical for potential donors? And then like just a strict procedural, like if you get approved through to the split process, does it require that somebody matches in order to trigger the process? Or do you like get the free storage and then like expecting that something will happen later? So our model today is one where you have to match first before moving forward with the retrieval process for the split program. If you did the KEEP program, that doesn't involve donation at all and you can move forward on your own timeline. But it has to be a mutual match. I guess if you had a match meeting we haven't had this happen, but if, you know, it just it doesn't feel right on either side, the match doesn't have to move through. Gotcha. But typically it would be for like a clinical reason, right? It could be that like we do a genetic carrier screen on both the donor and the sperm source, and maybe they match for a similar trait and the doctors might say, you know what? Let's find a different donor. Sure. And if that happens, that doesn't mean that that person wouldn't be a good donor for another intended parent. It just means not for that intended parent. So that's... Typically, it's a clinical thing. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious with such this human touch that you guys do have on this company, how you are thinking about scale and sort of thinking down the line of how you'll be able to keep getting calls with each person who's interested mm. and sort yeah. of having that super personal aspect to it. <laughs> yeah. How are you guys thinking about scaling with that? Sounds like you were in our all hands meeting this morning. Um, <laughs> Maybe I was. <laughs> yeah. It's like the, actually, it was framed as like good problem to have. For sure. We have way more calls book next week than we have the following. So I see that really as like seeing around corners, right? It's like, okay, we're seeing like an amazing reaction. Like people are are filling out their applications. How do we make sure we're appropriately staffed? I don't ever want to lose the human touch at all, right? I remember actually one of someone on our ops team a few months ago was like, what if we do group calls with donors where it's like one person from our team and then a few potential split members? And we're like, no, like that just hmm. takes away from the personal experience from the donor side, but also like, I want to be able to tell every intended parent that like we met one-on-one with every single person we have listed on this platform. And that's not something I'm willing to compromise on, right? So it's like picking and choosing, like where does it make sense to like scale up on the people side or to find other optimizations throughout? And I feel like we we did this a ton at Uber, right? It's like, mm-hmm. you know, getting drivers through our onboarding funnel. What optimizations can we afford to make that don't compromise trust and safety or things like that? So it's looking at it through the lens of like 
what are our core values? What do we stand by in making decisions that way? Yeah. So it sounds like you're not going to like do digital avatars that are powered by GPT-4 or whatever that are funneling people through the... <laughs> All chatbot GPT. Doing those yeah. calls, no. But we did have a conversation about chat GPT yesterday, right? <laughs> Around, um, I love when we get to like write really personal descriptions of the donors that we have, mm. right? Like, you know, I had intended parents that I sent over like five suggested donors yesterday because I fancy myself a bit of a matchmaker at this point. And <laughs> I love being like, oh, I know exactly who would work. But as I was writing them, I was like, oh my God, this is a perfect use case, right? Oh, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. like, let's let, you know, a bot write this instead of me it would be a much better use of my time and probably would come out better than me writing. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Because I don't think we've actually done this yet, but there are times when people are like, like people on our speakers or events team are like, hey, do you want to like write this thing for this post? Like just the little bio. And I'm like, I could just plug this into yeah. GPT and it would Terrible. give me a very good. Yeah. Listen, don't tell Becca, but I don't think anybody's listening to this from TechCrunch. So we're all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's worth exploring use cases that we can lean on yeah. chat GPT yeah. and other things to do. So, Yeah, one thing I was curious about is since you do come from both Uber and adding on to that Uber help, yeah. what did you learn there that you've taken with you when building co-fertility that you wanted to sort of build mm -hmm. that co-fertility as well? And what did you learn working at Uber and working through launching Uber Health that you're like, okay, that was not the best way to do that. This is why I'm coming to my new company and doing it a different way. Yeah. One thing I learned at Uber, both from like the early days of launching new markets. And actually, I remember in Boston, we launched something called Uber Boat. <laughs> it was like, you know, a way to take a water taxi from one side of Boston to the other. And I remember we felt so strongly that like, oh my God, this is going to be a new mode of transportation in Boston. And the regional GM at the time was like, mm, let's call this a, like a limited time thing. And I remember being like, but why? It's going to be amazing. It's going to work. And she was like, mm, we can always extend something that's limited time, but it's hard to come back from something that we're saying right. is true. Right. So, and it, I always had that in mind, even with Uber Health, which was we started with a beta of Uber Health. We started, mm -hmm. we had this like product that we thought would work. And we first brought on, I think it was like, 15 different healthcare organizations. And by the end of a nine-month beta, we had 100. This idea of like soft launching, I say now it's like, let's go slow to go fast. Yeah. And that's something that I'm very, very big on with co-fertility. So we did that. We soft launched the keep and split side of our business over the summer of 2022 before we launched publicly. And it was really a good way to just make sure everything was working and to make sure that we felt comfortable and confident in our process. And now, even as we think about rolling out, whether it's like a funnel optimization or rolling out like any small sort of thing, it's like, can we test this with a small group before we go big, right? So going slow to go fast, I think, gets us very much set up for success. The other thing I, and I'll never forget Ryan Graves, when we were working on Uber Health, said to me, Lauren, we can't boil the ocean. <laughs> I wanted to like solve every healthcare logistics problem with Uber. And right. I felt so passionately that there were a million different pain points we could solve, whether that was like transportation of people or delivery of healthcare items. I wanted to do it all. And he was right to say, hey, let's start with one area and be really good at it before we expand to other things. And so that's very much how I think about co-fertility as well. People are like, oh, are you doing like sperm donation? I'm like, no, 
we're not. We're <laughs> focused on egg donation. Like, let us crush this. We can talk about other things later, but we're really, really focused. And it's really that voice in my head of like, do not try to boil the ocean. It doesn't work. No. I just checked because I was like so curious as you kept talking about it. I was like, I remember all of this, but I'd covered it in 2018, the launch. I think this is the launch of what you're talking about. Yeah, the, March of 2018. Yeah, March 1st. And I spoke to Chris Weber yeah, yeah. at the time. Yeah. But I don't remember any of this. Of I'm just <laughs> reading an article <laughs> from the internet that says I did these things. Yeah, yeah. that's hilarious. <laughs> I'm curious about your founder, like your own founder journey and like, at the time when you were working at Uber, did you think like, oh, one day I'll found my own company? Has it always been something you thought you were going to do? Or did you think, oh, I'm going to be an operator and then this just happened? Or how did that work? I actually remember years ago while I was at Uber feeling ready to think about what was next for me, but not sure what it was going to be. And I was a faithful like TechCrunch reader and I would read about like this founder raised X amount of dollars to go solve this problem or this founder did this. And I remember feeling very down on myself because I think when you read a lot of those things, it's like, why haven't I come up with something yet? Or Mm, what am I doing? And it's like, well, when you read about the problems someone else is solving, you read about their solutions, it really doesn't help you think of your own. But I think what does help you think of your own is your own lived experience. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, I had my health journey and in, I gave birth to my daughter in, in May of 2021. And After she was born, and I had started to like noodle around with this idea of being an entrepreneur. I think at Uber, I was an intrapreneur, but I was Mm -hmm. like, "Hmm, what could I do in the entrepreneur space? I was really interested in food as medicine. It was really, I wanted to stay in the healthcare realm in some way, but just hadn't figured it out yet. And had started to talk with recruiters and different companies, but just like nothing felt right. And having given birth to this baby who... I look at her because I didn't know I would for sure have her Mm. and I didn't know how it would come to life. Like when I looked at her, it was like, I have to build something in reproductive health. Mm. I have to. And I didn't know what that looked like, but my own lived experience was something that I had not stopped thinking about egg donation or egg freezing, right? In the sense that like so many families are built that way and yet there wasn't much innovation happening in that realm. I think something I learned at Uber was that like you can take a problem like Uber Health, right? Like millions of people miss a doctor's appointment because they don't have access to a reliable ride. Mm -hmm. Uber had reliable rides in spades, but we weren't taking existing ingredients and putting them together in a way that would solve the problem until we built Uber Health. So here, egg freezing is happening. You can't have egg donation without egg freezing. Egg sharing is a thing that works, but how do we take these things and put them together in a new way to create a solution? So I don't think it's like rocket science or something like so out there, but you can have a simple solution to something that is a really big problem. Right. And the motivation to put them together. Like that's the key ingredient, right? Because tons of people have your personal experience probably or something similar to your personal experience, but they're like, oh, I can see how these things might go together. Oh, well, I guess I'll, let's Maybe see what 90 will. Day Fiance has to, <laughs> like, I don't know that's that. Fair. That's, that's, that's my personal yeah. experience again, sneaking in here where I'm like, what's on TLC? Like, I don't, <laughs> like I'm not like, I got to go build a company. Right? Yeah, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> I think believing it's possible is a big part right. of that, right? And, and that's where like doing a survey and getting conviction that people want what your idea is, is really helpful. But you have to deeply believe that people would be better off if the thing that you want to bring into the world existed. Mm -hmm. And sort of on that realm, how did you meet your co-founders? It's funny. 
so Hallie is someone that like I peripherally knew through the digital health scene, right? Like we had crossed paths at like a few different conferences and things like that. And I kind of, I always looked up to her. Like she was a role model of a young woman disrupting healthcare, right? Which is, I remember a lot of the meetings I would have in the early days of Uber Health, people were like, wait, who are you? Like, it was just kind of like unheard of, right? So Hallie was someone I very much looked up to and I followed her on Instagram. And I think we had maybe had like a couple brief interactions, but we did not know each other. She was more of an Instagram follow for me. And I remember it was literally the craziest thing. I gave notice at Uber following my maternity leave. I did not post it on LinkedIn or Instagram or anything. And Hallie DM me like the very next day huh. and was like, I heard you're building something. How is fundraising going? And I was like, I am not building something. I do not have an idea. <laughs> but like, are any of your portfolio companies hiring? And she was like, you're on the market? Like, because I said, like, I gave notice yesterday. Like, uh. and she was like, you're on the market. What's your phone number? So she called me. I remember like running down the stairs and telling my husband, like, oh my God, Hallie Teco DM'd me. And sure enough, we got on the phone and that's when she was like, hey, I've been noodling on this idea for a really long time. Like, what do you think? And for me, like that conversation, I never looked back. Mm -hmm. And Arielle, she had worked with Hallie when Hallie was at Natalist on a couple of partnerships. And so they knew each other from the like fertility community. And we just, we hit it off when we connected. It was like, okay, we all like feel super, super aligned on what we need to build. And also like all three of us are young moms we're all like Ariel lives in Boston. Hallie lives in Charleston. I live in LA. Like we had to agree on like building a remote company and doing it together without compromising being great moms. Right. And I think we just like very mm. much aligned on those principles and yeah, still to this day, it feels that way. It's interesting because you, you mentioned like Hallie sold Natalist to Everly. So mm -hmm. we just, we covered Everly a lot. I think they debuted at Battlefield, one of the Battlefields, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. But how do you think about the future of the company in that context? Like, do you think about, are you like in it for the long term or are you looking around for opportunistic exits or partnerships or like possibilities to combine with other people? Like what is more important to you? Building something that's independent and lasting or like seeing that dream come true as an artificial dichotomy? Yeah, I think <laughs> I am firm believer that anything is possible. And I tell my team that I think like if I were so focused on one or the other, like who knows what opportunity you're missing, right? Sure. So I don't yeah, like yeah. to be closed off to anything. I think it's still really early days and too soon to know where this could go. But I have incredibly like big, big ambitions for it in terms <laughs> of how many people we can serve and and just how much we can do in this space. So I wouldn't say there's any like particular immediate path. You know, I just think that would be stopping short, you know, like there's mm. so much to do in this space and so much impact that we can have. Yeah, you still have to boil the ocean. Yeah, lots exactly. Of ocean left to boil, right? <laughs> it's going to take a minute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. Well, Lauren, I think that's about it for time, but this flew by actually, but it was really, really nice talking to you and I really appreciate you coming on and sharing all this with us. Yeah, I loved it. You guys had very, very thoughtful questions. Really so appreciate you having me. We need that nice feedback. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? It's true. <laughs>Okay, that was our chat with Lauren. This is a really interesting startup. I think one of the most interesting things to me is how much of it is based around positioning and 
presentation to the audience and how you actually are received by your potential customers? What did you think, Becca? Yeah, no, I definitely thought similar because anything related to egg donation or sort of on the flip side of the table, sperm donation is such a weird space when it comes to marketing. I know I think about, I feel like every comedy movie from like pre-2005 had some kind of sperm donation scene that was just gnarly and meant comedic effect. And I feel like this whole area of reproductive health just doesn't get talked about as much because it always was such a weird thing. Like no one knew how to talk about it in a productive way, it feels like. So I definitely understand how this could be such a hill on the marketing side. Yeah, you're right. It was like definitely played for laughs in like gross out comedies on the like male side, right? Mm -hmm. It was very juvenile. And that was also, yeah, like that was basically the entirety of my exposure to this market for a long time. I think there was with tech specifically and when we were, we still are, but when STEM was a big thing and it was like, okay, let's like increase the representation of women in engineering fields and stuff like that. And then you had this come up as like, okay, well, if that's the thing you want to do, like services and benefits that offer kind of like egg freezing is going to have to be a big component of like how you approach that and make sure people feel comfortable making choices to stay in or get out of the working world, right? Or come back in. So that was like the exposure to that side of it. But yeah, I didn't know really anything else about it. And her describing like just how transactional it is and how it's kind of like pick from these catalogs. And then you have like a menu of prices based on rarity of like attributes essentially was super, super interesting and super icky, I guess. (laughs) I know. Yeah, I definitely knew nothing about that side of it. And I guess like it is interesting to think of like how people would pick like where they would want to get the eggs they end up using. Right. I don't know. I feel like this didn't come up in the call and maybe it wouldn't have been worth talking about with Lauren specifically. But something I always think is interesting is when you start getting into these like vetting processes. Oh, what kind of people do you want your kids to be? Like, it definitely gets a little weird because I think, especially before, if it's priced by these types of attributes, it's the whole argument is what I'm trying to get at. The whole argument of like, oh, my kid needs to go to Harvard. My kid needs to do X, Y, and Z. Whereas like, actually, if you had a kid and they became an electrician and were really kind, like, I'm pretty sure you would be just as happy with that. So it's hard to kind of think of how people are like making these choices prior to even conceiving the kid of like what exactly they want them to necessarily be. And that was a part of it that you're right, we didn't touch on, but should have, because it is sort of the flip side of the Like, obviously, Lauren is going to focus on the positive attributes of like why their process, you know, differs from the others. But on the other hand, it's like, okay, so you're the appeal for the donor side is like, I'm probably already fairly affluent, educated, accomplished, whatever. And so I'm choosing to do this in a non-transactional way because it like makes me feel better. And then on the recipient side, it's like all those are all attributes that we find desirable anyway and probably would pay for on the open market, right? But like that's not who you get on the supply side in the open market because you get people who are like, I would like to make some money here, right? Like I need Mm -hmm. money. Yeah. And so it does end up being exclusionary and a little bit, I mean, yeah, it's a selective process and it necessarily reinforces some of the class issues or other things that are going on at the same time, right? So that is a that is an issue mm-hmm. for sure. On the flip side of that too, like she was saying just when she started to look into this years before she even came up with the idea for the company, the fact that if she wanted eggs to be donated that had like like Jewish roots, it was more expensive. Yeah. So then it's like you get people who are like, why do I have to pay more for something that is the identity I'm already a part of? Right. So you definitely get a little bit of each side, but 
I don't know. Things like this, I'm always like, but the ethics right. are always a little hairy. They're definitely complicated. And I think, I mean, she probably would say, you know, we understand that and we would want to take it front on, right? Because the other thing I think you're talking about flip side, another good flip side is she was talking about access for LGBTQ plus recipients, right? And mm-hmm. like that is not something that has been possible or, you know, like most places aren't aiming for that or will use it as a disqualifier. Right. So they have it right up front. Like it's basically, it's one of their top, in the top nav, like it's part of their overall appeal, which is a really positive thing about the model. No, yeah, it definitely, it's always one of those things where there's just too many things on both sides, if it's good or bad. Right. It's hard to, always hard to draw that line. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I think Lauren would argue that the net benefit is that it's good. And I mean, based on our conversation, I tend to agree. It's definitely expanding. It's it's offering access to a different group of people. And maybe that means, you know, there are other models out there that have yet to be discovered that could offer access for still more. And mm-hmm. yeah, we'll hope those come to market because it seems like demand isn't going anywhere for this kind of thing. But mm-hmm. yeah. It's good chat. Any final thoughts or? I think one final thought is it's too early to really talk about this since they just started launch last year, mm-hmm. mainly like launches and taking on actual customers. But I'd be curious to check in with them like five years down the road. I'm really curious how many people will choose to share their eggs and how many people will just choose to do like the lower cost option to freeze and store them. Right. Because I'm sure, I want to believe a ton of people will do the donation, but because things still exist that would allow them to make money off of doing that, I am just really curious how it will end up playing out that side of it. Because I'm sure the side that's like, oh, you're freezing your eggs, we're finding ways to make it cheaper. Like, I mean, if you're looking into this process already, like, why wouldn't you pick that? But the split and the sharing... I'm just really curious how many people will go up for that. Yeah, I am too. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. I think it's definitely a circumscribed market. Yeah, the BOGO aspect has a fixed sort of like appeal and possibly that population is large enough to sustain that kind of business and possibly it isn't. But I think that is the biggest question mark for me too. So Mm -hmm. we'll have to check back in. We will. Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 